Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at what precipitated Occupy Wall Street and the legacy it left behind, as we can see it now from 10 years after the encampment at Zuccotti Park in the heart of the financial district, New York City. Clips today are from Economic Update with Professor Richard Wolff, The Dig, Belabored, Countdown, The David Pakman Show, and The Majority Report. About a hundred years ago, almost, capitalism crashed. In fact, it was the worst crash of capitalism in the United States, or indeed in the world. It came to be known as the Great Depression, because people understood how horrible it was. It lasted 11 years, 1929 to 1940. At its worst moments in 1933, the official unemployment rate was 25%, five times what it is today. Staggering cutbacks in production, staggering decline of our economic reality, vast suffering. To this day, I still think that the greatest rendition of what it meant was John Steinbeck's novel, The Grapes of Wrath. If you've never read it, take some time out. It will teach you about American history. But there was a heroic side to the suffering. The American people moved sharply and politically to the left. That's very important in a country that has trouble recognizing its own left-wing tendencies that run deep, and that Occupy Wall Street brought right back up to the surface. But back for a moment to the 1930s. Millions of people moved to the left politically. They joined unions on a scale we've never seen in American history, never before and never since. Millions of people joined unions to fight collectively against the employer class in this country. These were people who had never been in unions before. They were people whose parents had never been in unions before. Hundreds of thousands joined two socialist political parties and a communist party to give the left real depth, not only on the workplace, but throughout society. And there was a powerful coalition, an alliance between the labor movement as one part of the left and the socialist and communist parties on the other side of the left. And together, they made huge changes. Social security was created in the 1930s, a vast program to give the working class a decent shot at a decent retirement. Unemployment compensation by the federal government, when you lose a job through no fault of your own, which capitalism does to us every four to seven years, the government will give you money every week to get you through the hardest part. Federal jobs program that hired millions of people. I could go on. The first minimum wage, amazing. But the price had to be paid. 
When the war was over, 1945, when the Great Depression, followed immediately by the Great War, was over, a backlash unleashed itself in this country that shaped our history. The business community was horrified that they had to pay the taxes to pay for all of those progressive programs for the people. They didn't want that anymore. They wanted to undo what was called the New Deal by the Roosevelt government. The conservatives were horrified by the alliance of the United States with the Soviet Union during World War II. The religious community saw secularism as rising up as people discovered that struggling in this life might make at least as much sense as being the good person for that future life. All of that came together in a vast reaction. And from 1945 up until Occupy Wall Street, you could see the effects. Communist and socialist parties destroyed by deporting their people, by arresting their leadership, and by terrifying the American people about even being interested in what socialists had to say. No more of that was allowed. A taboo descended. Even when people fought for progressive goals, an end to racism, an end to sexism, an indecent approach to our natural environment. Whatever the issues were, they kept carefully away from a critique of capitalism because that was the center of the reactionary goals of that time. And the left was destroyed in the United States. Not a hundred percent, but a lot. And it got quiet and it got fearful and it didn't show up. And it cleaned its act up by making itself more and more acceptable. Nothing showed it more than the steady move of the Democratic Party from the push it made under Roosevelt to the pale shadow it became in recent decades. Occupy Wall Street changed that. In the summer and autumn of 2011, a political movement rose up suddenly, and it turned the clock around. It didn't hide the economic critique of capitalism. On the contrary, it put it right up front. The number one slogan was the 1% versus the 99%. Brilliant. In one set of a few words, the key point was made. We are a movement of the 99, and we're against the one. That's what had been said in the 1930s, and no one dared pick it up from 1945 until Occupy Wall Street. I shouldn't say no one dared. There were always a few, and we're all grateful to them for keeping the criticisms alive but they were marginalized. They were quieted. They were on the bare edges. Occupy Wall Street brought them back in. I can't overstate this. 
in a matter of weeks, let's remember, 300 cities across the United States reproduced those encampments that were led by what happened in Zuccotti Park in the Wall Street neighborhood of New York City. Sociologist Ruth Milkman and co-authors wrote, quote, OWS was not a spontaneous movement that appeared out of nowhere. It was carefully planned by a group of experienced political activists, newly inspired by the Arab Spring and the surge of mass protest around the world in the first half of 2011. That may be true, but what Occupy became went well beyond anything that planners had imagined, and many people who became active participants didn't have much political experience at all, particularly as occupations spread beyond New York to cities all over the place. Meanwhile, most everyone on the left at the time, as far as I can recall, was absolutely shocked that Occupy took off and exploded the way that it did. What did Occupy seem like at the beginning? What did you make of it? And then what did it become? I mean, the the one thing is that it was planned. It had been planned for months by a group calling themselves the New York General Assembly. And this was a small rotating group of a few dozen folks, if that. One of them was my good friend, David Graper, the late and great anthropologist and writer who would really you know, come into national prominence during Occupy Wall Street, which coincided with the publication of his book, Debt, The First 5,000 Years, that was an international bestseller. And so it was it was planned. They had different working groups within this assembly. They focused on media, communications. They came up with the slogan, we are the 99%, the frame of the 99%. They actually decided in those meetings, which happened weekly in Tompkins Square Park, they decided not to have demands for strategic reasons. And we can get into that because I think they were right. And they had a tactical group. It was this group that had had scouted Zuccotti Park and knew that it was there and had actually knew about its legal status. There was even a group of them that did a trial run where they tried to, to spend the night at the New York Stock Exchange sleeping on the sidewalk. And the results were pretty bad. I think nine people got arrested. So it wasn't very promising. So David Graber, you know, was very direct. He's said in interviews, I think he even said in the Milkman piece that you just referenced, I didn't think we'd make it through the night. I thought we'd get arrested. And that was what I thought as well, because I had spent the aughts in New York City protesting under the shadow of the war on terror, when you would, it just felt like you would, you know, come into public space and be kettled. Like there was impossible to get a critical mass. Maybe you'd be shunted into a free speech pen. Gatherings of over 20 people were illegal. And this was not a group that was asking for a permit, right? So I, on the one hand, yes, this group was planning an occupation, but I don't think they thought they were going to make it through the night. It's also important to give the context. I mean, and you mentioned the Arab Spring. If we think of that as the beginning of Occupy, then things actually kick up, kick off in Tunisia in December of 2010, when a vegetable seller named Mohamed Bouazizi, he was being harassed by the police. And in protest, he emoliated himself. And that energy was circulating around the globe. And so Occupy felt, it felt really linked to the game. Of course, there was also the financial crisis that it was responding to. And so there had been a call from ad busters 
the Canadian magazine. And it was about as minimal as you could get. The call was Occupy Wall Street, September 17th. Bring a tent, stay for months. And there was a little dancer on top of the Wall Street bull. Yeah. And it it said 20,000 people. The people who are planning Occupy Wall Street were like, stay for months with 20,000 people? I mean, it was totally disconnected from reality on the ground. And so they set their own ambitions. They, you know, set their own terms. September 17th was completely arbitrary. It was picked because it was the birthday of one of the editors of Adbuster's mother, right? It was completely random. And the fact that it took off was a testament to the folks who were planning it some of whom included people who were online rabble-rousers and connected to Anonymous, which was another big social trend at the time. It was, in a way, the most vibrant political force in the United States, which I think is a real contrast to where we are now. So there were people who were trying to organize and translate online discontent and rebelliousness into to offline action, which is always difficult. And it just felt very improbable that it would take off. The other thing I'll say as context is that there, there were attempts in that period to mobilize movements against Wall Street. There had been a multi-week occupation called Bloombergville that was targeting the city budget and the mayor that lasted a couple weeks, but definitely didn't grab national headlines. There had been a massive march in May of 2011. I went to it. I can't even remember it, but I know I went to it from emails, but it was so boring that I don't even have a memory of it, but it had lots of great demands a huge number of people in comparison to those early days that Occupy showed up. And yet it didn't do anything in terms of lighting a fire. So it it was interesting. I I don't know what it was about Occupy, but it was, I'm sure that it had to do with the audacity of it and the fact people just stayed put. There was also, you know, a radicalization against the police. There was a lot of kind of naive, the police are part of the 99% messaging I don't know if you remember, there was this hipster cop who became kind of iconic at Occupy. He was like a plain clothes, Natalie dressed, young hipster looking cop. Right. But he was still a fucking cop, you know. Yep. And these things became more apparent the week of the mass arrests on the Brooklyn Bridge, when over 700 people were arrested. There was a donation of $4.6 million from Jamie Diamond. Diamond, sorry. He needs to have that D on the end of his name. Yeah, I, know. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what I thought his name was for a long time. <laughs> you know, um, to the NYPD, you know, and basically the sense of like, yeah, Wall Street and the NYPD are working together and one on the same. And that I think in no way can that can you take credit for the amazing work against the criminal punishment system and police that's happening today. But I think it was really radicalizing for a lot of people who were part of Occupy, who had never had hostile encounters with the police before to see just the wanton violence and the contempt that they were treated with. Yeah. And it it did start, I think Occupy in a lot of complex ways did start to intersect with what were really BLM precursors around Troy Davis, who was executed in Georgia during Occupy's early days on September 21st, and then around Trayvon Martin's murder, which took place just a few months after Occupy started. And then, as you're saying, the NYPD had a major impact on the course of Occupy, and I feel like the repression mostly pretty much backfired, which is not to trivialize or romanticize what in some cases were pretty horrible costs of this repression, including really a really serious injury suffered by the Iraq war vet Scott Olson 
in Oakland. But there was all of this repression. And though activists obviously and rightly decried police abuses at the time, it seems to me like it did more good for the movement by helping draw more attention to it than it did in terms of harm, than it did harm in terms of by taking people off the streets and putting them in jail. Because both the September 24th mass arrests and pepper spraying of activists and then the October 1st march across the Brooklyn Bridge, which, as you mentioned, led to the NYPD making more than 700 arrests. These were both things that generated just like massive amounts of attention. Yeah, it is true. Occupy was sort of catapulted into the mainstream media by these incidents and by these viral videos of police violence. I mean, there were some too that you know we forget, but that were really major. So I remember this young activist, Megan Linick, and I actually had her write an account of it filmed on her BlackBerry, so that dates this movement, um, <laughs> as these NYU students were going to a Chase branch to close their accounts in protest. And the cops started basically dragging people from the sidewalk into the bank and beating them up and arresting them all when they were just going in there in a very, they weren't doing a sit-in. They were just saying, I'm against your role in the financial crisis. I'm closing my account for which they were arrested and held for over 30 hours. And that video got over a million views. And that was novel at the time, right? To have these moments be transmitted and circulated. A lot of that was anonymous, was amplifying these things. And they had such an enormous reach on online. And I think Occupy, what people had to get their minds around was that cops protect capital. That's who they are serving. They're protecting property, not people. And ultimately, they're protecting profits. And that's actually something that is a really core insight. And they were there to smash heads when the time came. And I saw a lot of people get thrashed at my time at Occupy. And certainly, it was happening. I think there were over 8,000 Occupy-affiliated arrests around wow. the country. And millions of dollars. I think Oakland paid out over 10 or $11 million of damages. So the public's paying for that, too. We're paying for the violence that these, that these forces are perpetrating. We mentioned uh, the Arab Spring earlier. One of the interesting aspects that came out of Occupy that I think other movements have also since then uh, reflected was the kind of global orientation and the interest in transnational organizing, or at least building some sort of global solidarity with movements. And I think we've seen that resonate with um, Black Lives Matter and, and the Me Too movement as well. And also labor, I think, has, has evolved in that direction too. So I, I was wondering if we can get outside of New York City a little bit, how you two feel that Occupy as a kind of globally facing movement may have informed the way people organize or the way activists see themselves. I think for people around the world to see for the victims of so much of the pain and death and destruction that U.S. imperialism wreaks on them, it was, I'm sure, a really inspiring and heartening development to see that people are finally taking to the streets and because there was such a long stretch of time um, of course, there were protests throughout the 2000s. The, the most sizable protest before Occupy that I can remember was the anti-war protests in the early 2000s before, you know, we're 
hundreds of thousands of people came out in the streets, not only in New York City, but around the world. And we invaded anyway, of course. So I think that once once Occupy took off and that message spread around the world in the same way that we were watching the Arab Spring with such hope, even though it was it took off in New York City and then subsequently took off in other cities across the country, it was a message that was heard around the world, particularly because that message of the 99% is one that's felt in so many places around the world. And, and New York City is the heart of capital. So I think that message, you know, it's hard to really put your finger on or quantify like what exactly or pinpoint. And I'm sure Ruth, you found this in your research. When someone asks, do you think that this was the result of Occupy? It's, it's really hard to put your finger on it because it's something that is, as I said earlier, kind of amorphous. But I think that it's that message has definitely infused movements across the world. Yeah, let's remember first that Occupy cloned itself all over the world. So it began in Zuccotti Park and here in New York, but then very quickly replicated first across the United States and hundreds of places and then also elsewhere. And at the same time, it was inspired, as we already talked about, by somewhat similar movements elsewhere in the world. I remember there was this wonderful um, publication that appeared in Zuccotti Park, the Occupied Wall Street Journal, put together by some very talented journalists. And I remember the first issue had this timeline, starting with Tahrir Square in Egypt and going, you know, through a series of other movements and then ending with Zuccotti Park. But of course, that wasn't the end. It continued. So there is that global story you know, just in the very short run, both before Zuccotti and, and after. And then maybe this isn't so much global, but I do think the success of Occupy inspired even people who hadn't directly participated, as well as many who had, to become involved in other kinds of movements, including Black Lives Matter, including Me Too, all the things that we've seen develop over the last year. And so it was kind of the starting point of a massive wave of protest that really did not exist before 2011. Sure, there were protests here and there, but they never had the scale or captured the public imagination in the way Occupy did in the years immediately preceding. So, you know, not since the 1960s have we really seen this kind of explosion of social activism. And I think Occupy was the starting point. So even though it didn't last very long as Occupy, it became the catalyst for a whole range of um, activities in the decades since. Yeah. And I think also in terms of the way movements like brand themselves and like sort of the circulation of symbols and imagery and slogans that, you know, facilitated by social media, I think that Occupy was definitely sort of the sort of laid out a template, right, for other movements to build upon. And hopefully we'll see other iterations of that in the coming years. And, you know, we called our report, the report I co-authored with Stephanie Luce and Penny Lewis, we called it changing the subject. And that was meant to have a double meeting on the one side, as many people have pointed out, the whole issue of inequality and its explosive implications was put into the center of political conversation after 2011 by Occupy. We've documented that just in like searching Google News for mentions of the word inequality. It goes up in 2011 and stays up thereafter. So there's that but it also created a new political subject. That's the other changing the subject, a new generation of political subject, I would argue, that went on to do all these other things. So some people poo-poo the whole thing as this, you know, oh, it was just a couple months, these kids in the park, you know, what's the big deal? But in fact, my own claim would be that 
this really was the start of something very important that has continued since. We depend heavily on memberships to fund the production of this show because having principles in the attention economy is bound to cost you. And that's definitely been the case for us. When the company that was selling ads for us way back demanded that we allow our listeners to be tracked and hyper-targeted with manipulative ads, we refused because we find that to be blatantly unethical and in many countries illegal when it's done without the ability to opt in or out, which is the case for all podcasts. Now, because many advertisers have gotten used to being able to hyper-target podcast listeners through other less scrupulous shows, they're less willing to advertise with integrity on shows like ours. This has really been squeezing our finances and making every single supporting member we have that much more critical to our ability to produce this show. If you are a member, thank you once again. If you want to support the work we do, please consider becoming a member at bestofleft.com support. If you'd like to advertise with integrity to our audience while protecting everyone's privacy, you can reach me directly at j at bestofleft.com. Thanks, as always, for your support. I want to make clear that Occupy Wall Street was a turning point as I stressed in the first half. In my judgment, there could have been and would have been no Bernie Sanders effort in 2016 without the ground being prepared by Occupy Wall Street five years earlier. And the same goes for the 2020 election. And the same goes for the sudden emergence of young, active socialists running for and getting elected for offices across the United States at the federal, state, and local levels. These are outgrowths, developments, building upon what Occupy Wall Street made possible. So let me turn a bit more analytically. What were the four causes I would point to for why Occupy Wall Street happened? The first one was the crash of 2008 and nine. The importance of this also, in my judgment, cannot be exaggerated. Capitalism collapsed in those four final months of the year 2008. We came this close to closing the U.S. economy altogether. I mean the kind of closing when you don't know whether there will be milk in the store when you run out to replenish for your children. That kind of collapse. Everything went wrong. All of the tools that we had been told could manage this economy so we would never again have the Great Depression. Yeah, well, we had it again. All of the geniuses who promised we wouldn't were wrong. All of the presidents who told us we will never again have the Great Depression, we've taken the steps, and I, my administration, all BS, and we lived through it, and we knew it, and it shocked the American people because it reminded them that you live in an economic system that can turn on you on a dime. No preparation, no planning, no nothing. You just have to go through it, and it's cataclysmic. That sparked something that led to Occupy Wall Street. Then there were those long years from 1945 right up until 2011 
when we had all watched Republicans and, unfortunately, Democrats undo most of what had been done in the Great Depression and the New Deal, make a joke out of Social Security because it wasn't enough to sustain people, watch the minimum wage drop in its value as prices rose and the minimum wage didn't. Watch us go through the crash of 2008 and 9, never having either the president or the Congress seriously debate a federal jobs program, which could have solved unemployment overnight the way it did in the 1930s. But this was now taboo. Couldn't do that. The business community didn't want it. So we didn't have it. And that contributed to an anger that led to Occupy Wall Street. Everything is being taken away from us as the economy shows how badly we need it. Then there was the vague feeling, which has become, of course, stronger now than it was 10 years ago. And this vague feeling was the empire is now shrinking. Yeah, at first it was just a Korean War. It didn't quite work out. And then there was Vietnam, and clearly we got defeated there. And now we've been defeated in Afghanistan. Excuse me, I shouldn't say defeat. We chose to withdraw. It does sound so much less troublesome. But the reality is very clear. And Iraq is right behind what Afghanistan already showed us. So that also led to Occupy. What's all this activity costing trillions of dollars, unspeakable amounts of killed people and wounded people and soldiers coming back and committing suicide and all of it that we know, this is not working out. This system is busted. And that, too, contributed to Occupy Wall Street. And here's the fourth and final one. As the empire begins its downward trajectory in the early years of this new century, as the costs of undoing the New Deal come in and bite us where we live and work, we watched what? We didn't watch the anger that had given us a progressive 1930s comeback. No, what we saw was the Tea Party. We saw things going to the right people becoming angry at conspiracies that they invented in the bad part of a rough night, QAnon and all the rest of it. What are we looking at here, those of us who know better? And that too contributed to Occupy Wall Street. We have to be, show, and move in a different direction. Those folks who are upset on the right are right to be upset. We share that with them. But the solutions they're looking for, those are paid for by the very corporations that are the problem. We should also mention that Occupy definitely existed on the internet. On Twitter, of course, and also on this amazing Tumblr where people posted photos holding up handwritten posters or notes, if I remember correctly, explaining what life experiences had led them to support Occupy, losing a job, debt, etc. 
And this was this moment also when people were trying to think about what the internet and social media meant for politics and activism. Sometimes I think in a hyperbolic or faddish way that didn't have a lot of rigor, (laughs) but that doesn't mean that there weren't important things happening with social media and the internet. What do you think that the internet meant for Occupy and for the left more generally that was reemerging at the time? Yeah, you're talking about the we are the 99% Tumblr. And so one thing before I get into the technology of that is, again, that for people to share their debt, to share their stories of hardship was so powerful because I think that's something that has been destigmatized a lot. And that's part of having a left where you go, okay, these are structural problems. It's not your personal failings. It's not that you failed to lift yourself up by your bootstraps. Like you're impoverished by design, you're indebted by design. And so for people to come out and I mean, literally coming out, right. And saying, I can't make ends meet (laughs) was a really powerful thing. And the internet made it easy for people who weren't somewhere where they could go to an encampment and do it by holding that cardboard sign to add their voice to the chorus. Occupy was always this really neat mix aesthetically of, technology of Twitter and Facebook and Tumblr. And then like these really just rustic or whatever, like simple cardboard signs, right? Like it had this mix of very lo-fi and and hi-fi together. I was writing at the time of Occupy, I was writing my book, The People's Platform. So I was thinking a lot about the internet. And one thing that stood out to me was that these pundits, people I was critiquing in the book as social media internet cheerleaders were going on and on and on about the Arab Spring. In Iran, it was the Twitter revolution. And then Egypt was the Facebook revolution. And oh, did we hear a couple had named their child Facebook? (laughs) And I was always very skeptical of these guys too, because they never talked about the need for a revolution at home. Like it was always some distant place that the internet was liberating. And it always somehow seemed to end up just crediting U.S. tech overlords for spreading progressive social change elsewhere. Exactly. Like those people need our technology to bring, we're bringing democracy to them through these, you know, basically colonial means. Pat on the back American capitalism. Exactly. And I thought was really interesting was that the lesson though, that all of us who had been watching these revolutions on live streams, the lessons we took from it was like, yeah, it's important to get the word out. It's important to live stream. But what's really important is going in your body to a public place. So in other words, the sort of chattering class was fetishizing the tech and kind of right giving these Silicon Valley tools as credit. But what regular people were like, oh, we need to meet in space as embodied humans and find each other and defy the authorities together in real time, in real space. And so I thought it was, I just was always very struck by the fact that people actually took, you know, they weren't taking a kind of determinist or tech fetishist lesson from these mediated, these technologically mediated revolutions. I interviewed um, Nalini Stamp, who was a very visible figure at Occupy and direct action, all sorts of working groups. And she's been involved in basically every movement since then about Occupy's legacy. And she, you know, she pointed out that in the United States, Occupy was the first movement that live streamed everything that had that constant updating of the Twitter feed. Transparency was a really big theme in Occupy, right? So people would would tweet out, you know, there was no messaging discipline. You tweet out all the ugliness and all the conflicts and everything like that. What that enabled, in addition to sort of transmitting the tactics, right? Bring a tent, set up a food station, set up a library. What it did was it enabled all of these local occupies to feel connected to the national narrative and to this global narrative. 
And it was the first time that we really experienced that here in the U.S. And so in that sense, I think Occupy kind of changed protest in two ways. One, it brought back this kind of defiance, this sort of, yeah, we're not doing the choreographed thing. And then also, and you live stream it and you spread the word that way. Everyone on the internet is vying for your attention. And unfortunately, we are no different, except that we only try to earn your attention, never trick you out of it. So if you get value out of this show, then you can help support us just by making sure you know about every new episode we put out so that you can decide whether or not to listen to it. This is a delicate balance because we also discourage distracting interruptions and random dings coming from your devices. That said, nearly every podcast app gives you the option to be notified when a podcast of your choice releases a new episode. We hope that you will turn that option on for Best of the Left, but set the notifications to be delivered quietly so you only see them when you're ready to see them. Thanks for your attention. It is the most precious resource you have, and it is exactly what we need to keep the show going strong. I think one of the biggest criticisms, and there are many, (laughs) one of the biggest criticisms of Occupy over the years and at the time even was just that this was a, you know, a leaderless movement without any demands. And obviously there are pros and cons to that. But I think that the absence of a concrete campaign to get behind, I think it was a detriment, I think, in many ways. And so when we had actual campaigns to rally around, it absolutely drew new people in, folks that were down at Zuccotti when they found out that we had a picket line somewhere, when they knew they could help out on some campaign concretely to support the low-wage immigrant workers in New York City who were struggling. So it wasn't just this kind of nebulous, not, and I don't mean that in a derogatory way, but it wasn't this kind of like amorphous, you know, demand. It was like a very concrete thing that they were coming to support, which is to go after this employer at this one deli on the Upper East Side, where in a zip code, a very wealthy zip code right here in New York City. We had folks who would just show up. We put out a call and people just showed up. People showed up with instruments. There were two amazing supporters who showed up with their cameras to document the struggle at Hot and Crusty. And then they ended up producing an award-winning documentary called The Hand That Feeds. (laughs) But they were initially, Rachel and Robin were just initially supporters of they were just coming to to support the picket line and they happened to bring their camera and record what was happening and ended up turning into this amazing piece of history so people really brought their skill sets and for the workers it was just incredible to see these strangers who they may have seen down at Zuccotti and they may have seen in one of the working group meetings but to see them actually show up outside of their workplace and hold the line really join a picket line and not just show up one day or one hour, but continue to show up day after day for the workers was, I think, a really transformative experience for a lot of people. And in our last couple of minutes, I guess I I wanted to get a sense in retrospect, when you look at what Occupy accomplished and maybe the type of resonance it had well beyond the movements and the campaigns themselves, Maybe you could address some of the critiques of the movement that have come out over the past decade or so, and maybe also lessons learned, both what is possible and and what could be done differently next time. I think the most compelling criticism was actually that, although on the one hand, the strength of Occupy was its focus on class inequality, there were times when other kinds of oppression and inequality were not 
sufficiently attended to, race and gender in particular. And it, it wasn't completely absent, and there were struggles within Occupy to lift those things up. But I think that was both a strength and a weakness at the same time. But I think that lesson was absorbed pretty rapidly by the people involved. And again, Black Lives Matter being one of the after effects. Nestron, any lessons learned? Yeah, I would agree. That was probably the most significant criticism, not only at that time, but even just looking in retrospect years later, just that it was largely a movement of white activists who were just looking at New York City there, who didn't really have very much connection with the city itself and the working people in the city. I, I mean, I remember that was my biggest criticism from the first time I I started joining meetings. And so I think that the message was incredibly powerful and the lack of hierarchy was at times very empowering, I think, for so many people to, to join this space because there weren't the same barriers and limitations that exist in other, in other organizations or political parties or jobs, nonprofits. It was so decentralized that it really allowed so many people to join its ranks and learn and grow. And, but it was mostly white folks. (laughs) We know the significant um, limitations that that presents. It wasn't just the fizzling out of the actual physical space. I think once the loss of the physical space happened, many of the people that were down at Zuccotti didn't really know what to do from there because they weren't necessarily connected with any struggles in New York City. And, and, I can go on and on and on about what that eventually led to. And I think a lot of amazing people ended up doing great work over the years. And there were many organizers that were involved in Occupy that actually were from New York City or were part of the labor movement, but they were the exception. So I would say that that was the biggest criticism. And then uh, looking at Occupy Sandy, there's a whole set of, <laughs> a whole nother set of considerations with that work and the fact that organizers were who were not from the kind of the outer boroughs of New York City, who were plunked down there for a few months to do that work and were able to do fantastic work, but also were not from those communities themselves. But yeah, I would agree with Ruth. That was probably the biggest criticism of Occupy. For the whole of the time that the Occupy Wall Street protesters have been making their case for a sea change in the way we Americans permit big business to draw and quarter and circumscribe our lives. Media too corrupt or too dense to understand anything more complicated than whether the blonde is missing or the verdict is guilty have parroted what do they want, what is their catchphrase. In our third story, it is not a catchphrase, but it is a declaration of what they want. That the document, which I will read in full in a moment, is not a list of laws to be repealed nor politicians to be elected, may only confuse the precocious ninth graders now passing for TV anchor newsmen these days. But the absence of the kind of painted footsteps with which they used to mark the floors of dance instruction studios is, in a way, breathtaking. The two-by-four that Errol Lewis described, it implies that there is so much to change, that such a tipping point has been reached, that some easy-to-apply band-aids just are not going to be enough. And it implies that the commentators and politicians and moneyed interests that do not come to understand the scope of what must change will be without influence and without power before they realize that the change has happened. So with that as preamble, here is formally and finally what Occupy Wall Street says and wants. It is, in essence, their special comment. 
As we gather together in solidarity to express a feeling of mass injustice, we must not lose sight of what brought us together. We write so that all people who feel wronged by the corporate forces of the world can know that we are your allies. As one people, united, we acknowledge the reality that the future of the human race requires the cooperation of its members, that our system must protect our rights, and upon corruption of that system, it is up to the individuals to protect their own rights and those of their neighbors, that the democratic government derives its just power from the people, but corporations do not seek consent to extract wealth from the people and the earth, and that no true democracy is attainable when the process is determined by economic power. We come to you at a time when corporations, which place profit over people, self-interest over justice, and oppression over equality, run our governments. We have peaceably assembled here, as is our right, to let these facts be known. They have taken our houses through an illegal foreclosure process, despite not having the original mortgage. They have taken bailouts from taxpayers with impunity and continue to give executives exorbitant bonuses. They have perpetuated inequality and discrimination in workplaces based on age, the color of one's skin, sex, gender identity, and sexual orientation. They have poisoned the food supply through negligence and undermined the farming system through monopolization. They have profited off the torture, confinement, and cruel treatment of countless animals and actively hide these practices. They have continuously sought to strip employees of the right to negotiate for better pay and safer working conditions. They have held students hostage with tens of thousands of dollars of debt on education, which is itself a human right. They have consistently outsourced labor and used that outsourcing as leverage to cut workers' health care and pay. They have influenced the courts to achieve the same rights as people with none of the culpability or responsibility. They have spent millions of dollars on legal teams that look for ways to get them out of contracts in regards to health insurance. They have sold our privacy as a commodity. They have used the military and police force to prevent freedom of the press. They have deliberately declined to recall faulty products, endangering lives in pursuit of profit. They determine economic policy, despite the catastrophic failures their policies have produced and continue to produce. They have donated large sums of money to politicians who are responsible for regulating them. They continue to block alternate forms of energy to keep us dependent on oil. They continue to block generic forms of medicine that could save people's lives or provide relief in order to protect investments that have already turned to substantial profit. They have purposely covered up oil spills, accidents, faulty bookkeeping, and inactive ingredients in pursuit of profit. They purposefully kept people misinformed and fearful through their control of the media. They have accepted private contracts to murder prisoners, even when presented with serious doubts about their guilt. They have perpetuated colonialism at home and abroad. They have participated in the torture and murder of innocent civilians overseas. They continue to create weapons of mass destruction in order to receive government contracts. To the people of the world, we, the New York City General Assembly, occupying Wall Street in Liberty Square, urge you to assert your power, exercise your right to peaceably assemble, occupy public space, create a process to address the problems we face, and generate solutions accessible to everyone. To all communities that take action and form groups in the spirit of direct democracy, we offer support, documentation, and all the resources at our disposal. Join us and make your voices heard. The statement issued from Zuccotti Park by the General Assembly at Occupy Wall Street.
We've just heard clips today, starting with Economic Update with Richard Wolff laying out some of the historical context of leftism in the hundred years leading up to Occupy. The Dig discussed how Occupy got started and the impact of online videos and live streaming, which were pretty new at the time. Belabored highlighted how Occupy permanently changed the discussion on inequality in America. Economic Update then looked at the foundational problems that helped spark Occupy. The Dig discussed the role of social media in the recent uprisings around the world. Belabored looked at some of the valid criticisms of the movement. And Countdown with Keith Olbermann from 2011 read the collective statement of the General Assembly of Occupy Wall Street. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard bonus clips from The David Pakman Show from 2011, in which David spoke with Glenn Greenwald, who I don't particularly endorse these days, explaining Occupy as part of the disillusionment from the first few Obama years. You know, I think the most significant thing about the 2008 campaign with respect to the Occupy Wall Street movement is that the Obama candidacy really specifically targeted those people who had decided that working within the political system was no longer um, worthwhile or that they who, who had always concluded that it wasn't worthwhile. And they saw that nothing changed, that everything continued as is, that the same factions continued to be served. That was really what increased the cynicism more than it had ever existed before. And it's what led so many people to the conclusion, well, if it didn't happen here, it's never going to happen. And now I realize that the only viable course of action is to work outside of this system. The Majority Report, also in 2011, spoke with a writer who looked back to the populist movement of the 1880s. They envisioned all sorts of things that that required decades, two generations to be realized now. A good number of these populist ideas first floated in the 1890s, were later put into effect by FDR in 1934 and thereafter. So the comparison that can be drawn today to the Occupy Wall Street movement is it may take 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years for a movement to actually affect real change in this country. It may be a multi-generational affair. And the dig this year described more of the lasting legacy of Occupy, including Joe Biden, of all people, campaigning on debt cancellation. The fact is, Joe Biden, Obama's vice president and Mr. Former Senator of Delaware, the credit card capital of the world, the friends of you know the longtime friend of creditors campaigned on debt cancellation. And that would not happen without Occupy. To hear that and all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your podcast feed, sign up to support the show at bestofleft.com slash support or request a financial hardship membership because we don't make a lack of funds a barrier to hearing more information. Every request is granted, no questions asked. And now we'll hear from you. Hi, Jay. This is Scott from Canada. I wanted to respond to Allison from Boulder, Colorado. I agree that much of the moderate anti-choice rhetoric is sexist, or as Allison puts it, slut-shaming. Allison points out how their assertions that abortion ought to be safe, legal, and rare is sexist. I would add that their concessions that abortions ought to be allowed in the case of rape are also sexist, because if a woman is impregnated against her will, then it's not her fault she's pregnant. Not like those sluts that get knocked up having dirty, dirty consensual sex. But I want to emphasize as well that a lot of the time, 
The work being done by those exact instances of rhetoric is also the demonstration of moderation. To be militant is distasteful in modern American politics. To be moderate is divine. And so, an unthinking person will seize an opportunity to signal their moderacy by parroting the safe, legal and rare line. Or the exceptions in the case of rape angle. I like to urge people to recognize the error they are making in embracing a moderate position on abortion. Really, a militant pro-choice position is the only moral position a person can make if they really consider every angle of this issue. Thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line or wrote in their messages to be played as voicemails. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can record a message at 202-999-3991 or write me a message to j at bestofleft.com. Now, I, I do have more messages about 9-11 truth conspiracy theories and how to deal with them. I, I would love to get back to that today. I find it interesting in a sort of analysis kind of way and, and, you know, dealing with misinformation and critical thinking. I, I love that stuff. I'm going to have to put that off until another day because I have something uh, very time sensitive to deal with. And it has to do with the three clips that members just heard. I will have played at least little snippets for non-members for context because I had a bit of a revelation during the production of this episode, and I want to tell you about it. And it has to do with the the ideological split on the left and how I thought it played out and how maybe I was wrong about the timeline and how uh, how it might have played out a little bit differently. So here here's my timeline that I have been using for a while. I thought that by approximately the end of 2009, getting into 2010, progressives on the left were starting to feel pretty disappointed in Obama. And, you know, we gave him a lot of leeway and, and were excited about him when he came in, but he put a lot of very bank-friendly people in his administration at the exact moment in time when we needed to be very unfriendly to banks. That's sort of the shorthand. There, there might be a lot of other things to be either happy or unhappy with him for, but that was the big one. And so I thought, okay, like there's this split on the left where a lot of people thought, hey, we got a Democrat in office. This is great. What's the problem? And progressives like me who are like, oh, boy, that got disappointing fast. That is too bad. And then I thought, moving ahead several years, that there was a subsequent split on the left during the Bernie Sanders campaign in 2015 and 2016, when the Bernie or bust crowd splintered off and started advocating that we not attempt to defeat Donald Trump if we couldn't do it with Bernie Sanders and sort of making comparisons with Hillary Clinton being essentially just as bad as Trump or arguing that it would actually be long-term good if the country fell under a Trump administration because we'd all see how bad it was etc. They, they had all sorts of explanations. So anyway, I thought that was another split on the left that happened. So th there's sort of these three branches now, the sort of moderate liberals who are perfectly happy with people like Obama, would have been thrilled with Hillary Clinton, think Joe Biden's doing great. There's the progressives, this is the camp I fall into, who unfortunately, I'm probably never going to be happy with anyone ever. 
and I will take wins where I can get them and will always push for more. That's kind of where I fall. And then there's this other splinter left, which is the the political system is so fundamentally broken, we're not going to get what we need using the political system. And as I said, I thought that 2015, 2016 was the real splinter point for that. But as we all just heard, Glenn Greenwald back in 2011 described disillusion with Obama as being the point at which people in 2011 had already begun to think that the political system was beyond repair. If Obama wasn't going to be the one, then we needed to look elsewhere, not at different politicians necessarily, elsewhere in terms of different ways of working the political system. And at the time, he was referring to things like Occupy, which is great. This is an example of inside-outside politics. Inside is the politicians and lobbying and trying to get bills passed. And outside is activism and pressure and campaigns, not political campaigns with politicians, but campaigns with activists, that sort of thing. So those go hand in hand. That is how politics is supposed to work. And so at the time, that didn't strike me as, as anything bad or wrong. But now with the benefit of hindsight, I can see the beginning of that 2015, 2016 splinter in what Glenn is saying in 2011, and that the Occupy mentality was the beginning of what became Bernie or Bust. Occupy, which I wholeheartedly endorse and enthusiastically championed at the time, and Bernie or Bust, which I thought was completely silly and childish from the first moment I heard it, and now five, six years later, I still can't wrap my mind around what those people thought they were going to get out of that campaign. But then it gets even better, because then in another clip that members heard in full, there was an interview with someone, again, back in 2011, talking about Occupy, but taking a huge, broad scope of history, looking back to the 1880s, to the last major progressive movement, and talking about how that movement took 40 years to gain traction, to finally come to partial fruition in FDR's New Deal era. And the gap between these mentalities is so enormous, it makes me realize that the Bernie or Bus mentality, the, well, if Obama in 2011 is already so disappointing, I am now convinced that if he wasn't going to be the one to fix it all, then there is no one who could ever fix it all, and the political mechanism is not the mechanism that we need to use to find solutions. That that mentality, which I have thought is pretty childish, I now even think is more so, <laughs> with, with the benefit of this other vision of how progressive movements work and the length of time that they take to come to fruition. I mean, we are living in the pinnacle of the neoliberal movement, which has been underway for 40 years. This is how long movements take to come to fruition. But then we, when we get to our third bonus clip, it gets thrown into even starker relief when we're reminded that Joe Biden, of all people, was campaigning for president using ideas born out of Occupy Wall Street. 
That is how populist movements get their power. They infuse their ideas into society, and they get implemented into the political system. And no, it doesn't happen as fast as we would like for it to. It certainly didn't happen as fast as we would have liked it to back in the 1880s. It took all the way until the FDR administration. And no, it didn't happen as fast as we would have liked to immediately after the crash and the Great Recession. And Occupy would have been very happy to have their policies implemented under the Obama administration. And it didn't happen, but we laid the groundwork and progress is being made. So here we are under a Biden administration. I was in no way excited about a Biden presidency, and yet I can still see it as a sign of progress. And I think that what people might have a problem understanding is that what I'm saying is not be patient. Be patient is terrible. Don't be patient. Don't think that what I'm saying is things move along at their own pace and you just need to wait for it. I am not saying that. Be impatient. Be eternally impatient, but also have perspective. Understand realistically how long things take and be impatient all along the way, recognizing that it is your impatience that helps move that along faster as long as it may take anyway. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestofleft.com. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Ken, and Scott, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmaster, and bonus show co-hosting and thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing a gift membership at bestofleft.com support or from right inside the apple podcast app membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good bonus episodes in addition to there being extra content and no ads in all of our regular episodes for instance, today, you would have heard the full clips from David Pakman and Glenn Greenwald and the Majority Report and all of that that we discussed. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on our website and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestofleft.com. Mm-hmm.